0: Let me start this morning's message by reading to you an article from Triathlete magazine. Now, I know that's not the magazine you expect me to read because I don't have a singular sporting ability whatsoever. Uh, But hopefully you'll see why I've chosen this one. With less than half a mile to go in the 2016 World Triathlon Final in Mexico, Great Britain's Johnny Brownlee seemed to have a win in the bag. His performance was so dominating, his lead so commanding, that race commentators <laughs> emphatically stated that the world title would surely be his. As though the commentator's confidence cast a sudden spell on Johnny, he then began to show obvious signs of heatstroke. His stride became oddly stunted and bouncy, and a slight grimace cast over his face. As he came round one of the final turns towards the finish line, It seemed like the road below his feet had sloped sideways and Johnny slowed to a wobble. Perhaps he thought he'd crossed the line. Perhaps he was just done. But the race, of course, was not over. Johnny still had about 50 metres left to run. And as the clearly confused athlete stumbled into an official's arms, it appeared his race was over. But his brother Alistair wasn't about to have Johnny's day end there. No more than seven seconds after Johnny slowed, Alistair surged around the corner and came upon his struggling sibling. Without hesitation, Alistair swooped his head under Johnny's shoulder, slung his arm over his back and barked out, you can make it, as he began leading him towards the finish line. And thus began one of the most iconic moments not only in the history of triathlon, but in all of sport because for about 45 exhilarating, tear-inducing seconds, Alistair painstakingly guided his brother down the blue carpeted home stretch, arm in arm, choppy stride for choppy stride. Even as another contestant sprinted past them and took the win, all eyes shifted to the stunning display of sportsmanship and brotherly love. The older brother sacrificed his own race and possible victory to help his younger sibling finish literally tossing him across the finish line so he could hold on to second place. The footage from the race went viral almost immediately, and the story made headlines all over the world. There you go. (laughs) What I hope we'll see this morning is that the fellowship the Bible calls us to is every bit as powerful as the display of sacrificial love we see in this story. And the reason why we can have such a rich fellowship is not because of a shared common interest. After all, every contestant in that race enjoyed triathlons. No, it's because of our gospel identity as brothers and sisters in Christ. Like Alistair and Johnny, we are also running a race with our brothers and sisters. And like Alistair and Johnny, our fellowship is both where we find grace to reach the end and the means by which we help others reach the end. And as Matt led us through uh, on Saturday morning, we'll spend some time thinking, firstly, why fellowship is such a rich means of grace. And then we'll follow that up with how it actually helps us to grow. If you can turn in your Bibles to the letter of 1 John, it's right near the end, handy hint. Um, We're going to look at two reasons why fellowship is such a rich gift of grace for Christian growth. And the first reason we'll see in the passage is that through fellowship, we enjoy a key component of the gospel. And the second reason is because through fellowship, we experience fullness of joy in the gospel. So then, what do I mean by a key component of the gospel? Let's read 1 John together now, starting in verse one of chapter one, going up to verse four. so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. John starts his letter with no formal introduction and just cuts straight to the chase. His words are poetic and dynamic, but they're actually a little cryptic upon a first read. As he unravels the description, we begin to realize he's not talking about something, but someone, Jesus. Let me re-paraphrase those four verses to illustrate what I mean. Jesus, who was from the beginning. Jesus, who we have heard. Jesus, who we have seen with our eyes. Jesus, who we have looked at and touched with our hands. We proclaim these things about Jesus, the word of life. Jesus appeared. We saw him and we testify to it. And we proclaim to you that he is eternal life, that he was with the Father and that he has appeared to us. John centres his proclamation around Jesus. And actually, we can have great confidence in his proclamation because we know these things to be true. As a disciple of Jesus, John really did see, hear and touch him. When we read these words about Jesus being the eternal life, we can't help but remember chapter three of John's gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But eternal life isn't the sole and only reason for John's proclamation. We can often simplify the gospel to just mean salvation, but there's more. Did you see his reason in verse three? so that you too may have fellowship with us. Clearly then, fellowship with one another is a core part of the gospel. John wouldn't have made it his purpose for sharing the good news about Jesus if it wasn't so important. So what does John mean by fellowship? Well, the word he used in the original Greek, koinonia, signifies having something in common, participation in the same thing, or having a share in something. So as receivers of the gospel message of eternal life here, what is it that we share in? John goes on, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Amazingly, whilst the Father and the Son have enjoyed fellowship for all eternity, out of the overflow of God's love, He makes a plan to bring us into this perfect loving union. And so Jesus went to the cross to make this happen. He went to the cross so that we might be in him and so enjoy fellowship with him and the Father. In Galatians 2, we read that we have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In 1 Corinthians 1, we read that because of the Father's eternal plan, we are in Christ Jesus. And when Jesus describes his relationship with those who would come to trust him, he describes us as being the branches and himself as the true vine. He implores us, abide in me the point of the gospel, the point of God's eternal plan of salvation is so that we might enjoy fellowship with God the Son and God the Father by God the Spirit forever. And this does not happen on an individual basis. No, as we are brought into fellowship with Jesus, as we share in his righteousness, we are also brought into fellowship with every other believer so that we might all be one as the Father and Son are one. If you are a Christian today, you are deeply, eternally rooted to Jesus. And that person sitting next to you, they are deeply, eternally rooted to Jesus too. That means that whilst you may be an individual branch, because of Jesus, you are part of the same vine. Likewise, while the Bible describes us as different parts of the body, Because we have the same head in Christ Jesus, we are one body. In the book Sing by the Gettys, they write this about the earliest believers. They had nothing in common, except that they had everything that mattered in common. Faith in Christ, who joined them by his spirit. The basis of our fellowship then is not that we enjoy hanging out together, but that we have come to know the same Saviour. In the gospel, we see the fulfillment of God's promise way back in the beginning of the Bible to make one people for himself. So why has God planned salvation this way? What's the point of taking a ragtag group of people from different ages, different backgrounds, with different interests, to make them one people, one family. Friends, it is for our joy. Through fellowship, we experience fullness of joy in the gospel. The last line of our opening passage in 1 John says this, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And that phrase, our joy, it could also be translated as your joy. But there's just a sense of mutual joy in fellowship. It works for both parties. John is telling these things to the believers so that through their fellowship together, they may all have complete joy. And if we go back to Jesus's words in John 15, where he describes himself as being the true vine, after imploring his disciples to abide in him, he says this. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. When we talk about joy in fellowship, there's two aspects to it. There's a joy for the here and now, as we join together and sing with gladness, as we've been doing this morning, as we share food with one another in our homes or in the canteen here, and as we laugh together as good friends but there's also a more lasting joy that as we spur one another on through exhortation and encouragement, we help to keep each other until the end where we shall have joy forevermore in heaven. David Mattis writes this in his book, Habits of Grace. We were made to worship Jesus together among the multitude with the great horde swallowed up in the magnificent mass of the redeemed. God didn't fashion us to enjoy him finally as solitary individuals, but as happy members of a countlessly large family. Together, we experience the secret of worship, the joy of self-forgetfulness, as we become preoccupied together with Jesus and his many perfections. So then, if our union with one another but sorry, if our union with Christ is the basis of our union with one another, it follows that the more we draw near to Christ, the better our fellowship will be. And in the same way, the more we fellowship with one another, the better we will be able to help each other draw near to Christ. So let's address that second question of how and look more specifically at practical ways of helping one another towards that goal. Once again, I've split the answer to the question into two points. And we're going to be using a new passage uh, for this second point. So if we can turn together to Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. and know that's a quick Bible change. I'll, I'll read it as I think it's on the screen. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Right in the middle there is the key to all that good stuff on the outside. This verse is like a sandwich and the filling is this, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. So our first way we can grow through grace in fellowship is this, just show up. When Matt introduced the theme of this weekend to us on Friday, we saw our desperate need for the ongoing grace of God in our lives. But God's grace is not something we can squeeze out of him, as if by our own efforts or desperate pleas, we can convince God to show grace to us. And that's because we don't need to. God is abounding in grace, and in his loving kindness, he outpours his grace to us in so many ways. And through some of those ways, he has especially promised his favour. To get more of God's life giving grace in our lives, we need to align ourselves where God has promised his grace will flow. And as you may have guessed already, one of those is fellowship. Primarily, the fellowship that happens when we gather with one another on Sunday morning. Whilst God is present everywhere, always, he promises to make his presence especially tangible in certain circumstances. Jesus promised his presence where two or three are gathered in his name. And as believers gather, Ephesians tells us that we are being built together into a dwelling place for God to live by his spirit. If our fellowship with others will grow from our fellowship with God, Why would we not want to be where God has promised to be? The reality is that sometimes we don't feel like it. There may be times when the alarm goes off and all we can think about is how exhausted we are. Or times when the to-do list that week has been growing instead of shortening and church just feels like a squeeze on our resources and time. There may also be times when we've had a dry week spiritually. Weeks where the desire to seek God in his word or to cry out to him in prayer has dried up. The temptation could be to stay away from church when we feel this way, but these are the times when we need the awakening that comes from worshiping together most of all. Again, David Mattis writes this, there are times, may God make them many, when the Holy Spirit takes the scripture read the prayer spoken, the chorus sung or the truth preached and presses it right to the point of our need. Corporate worship does not merely inform our Christian walk but heals us or transform us in that moment. By God's grace, he uses the body of the church to revive us, to bring us back into close communion with him Worshipping together with other believers is the invaluable reinforcement for our spiritual life when our own personal devotion fizzles out. I know from personal experience, the temptation to stay at home and get on top of deadlines. I knew times where awareness of my sin kept me from wanting to spend time with other Christians. Even now, as our midweek group rolls around every Wednesday, I find it hard to muster the energy to leave the house. But can I encourage you all this morning that God is faithful to bless and encourage us when we honour his command to meet with one another? I cannot count the times I have driven to be with other Christians, feeling like I'd rather be doing anything else, and then I've driven home full of joy and thankfulness. So then, just show up, This really is such a crucial step towards long-term growth as a Christian. And it's important, as we've already touched on this weekend, to realise that church is not a place for those who have their lives sorted out already. In fact, it's in the messiness of life that we need church most. Come to be with other believers and God will meet you in your need and in your brokenness to minister to you by the grace of fellowship. But to really grow, we need to do more than just show up. We need to to participate too. Our fellowship with other believers must never be primarily about what we can get out of it, but what we can give to it. So the second practical answer to how we grow through fellowship is to participate well. We've just spent some time together in the middle of Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, discussing how the primary way we ensure to meet together is through our Sunday gatherings. Whilst this should be our priority for fellowship, the author likely has in mind a much richer concept of not neglecting to be with one another. What a wonderful thing it would be if our weeks were regularly dotted with time spent with other believers. As fellowship with one another is a way for our hearts to be awakened to deeper fellowship with Jesus, What a joy it is to have life group, home groups, and prayer meetings. How precious it is when two believers meet for coffee, for a Bible study, or have each other over for dinner. And these are all perfect opportunities to put into place what else we read in Hebrews 10. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Interestingly, those verses don't seem like obvious routes to personal growth. But as we look deeper into three ways they call us to fellowship, we'll see that helping others to grow is a powerful means for our own growth too. So, how do we participate well? I have three mini subpoints under this point. First, we consider one another. And that verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, translates more literally as something like this, consider others in such a way that love and good works are stirred up. Consider each other, get to know one another. It's a call to the kind of selflessness that counts others as more significant than ourselves. We are to live in such a way that our daily attention is not inwardly focused, but on how we can move our brothers and sisters to good works by our concern for them, our knowledge of them and our love for them. This is a calling to a purposeful life of creatively thinking about others and how we can use our time and our actions and our words so that they might demonstrate the love of Christ. This kind of daily active focus on others will realign our hearts, even to those we find difficult to love. The kind of fellowship in mind here in Hebrews 10 is not a begrudging gritting of the teeth that simply puts up with some people. We are to consider them, to know them. And when we find that hard, we must pray That the Spirit would move our hearts to love those who we struggle to love so that we may spur them on. Secondly then in verse 25 we see that the antidote of neglecting to meet together is encouraging one another. The expectation is that as Christians meet together encouragement for one another will flow. So what does true Christian encouragement look like? It looks like pointing out areas in people's lives where we have seen them bearing fruit, evidence of where we have seen God's grace at work in their lives. It looks like thanking others for the way they serve and love us, thus helping them to go on cheerfully serving us. It looks like sharing God's promises with a struggling believer, assuring them that their circumstances are under his control. We point them to their future hope of eternity with Jesus helping them lift their head toward God. And this kind of encouragement is gonna come all the more naturally to us, the more saturated we are with God's word. When we dwell in scriptures, when we meditate and reflect upon verses and passages, we will be much better equipped to encourage our brothers and sisters with life-giving words of truth. Encouragement isn't always about speaking though. Sometimes it's about listening. It's about standing alongside each other through joys and griefs, through achievements and through failures. And as we walk together, let's take our communal pain and sorrow and bring them to the one who has promised to bear our burdens. Let us be a people whose fellowship is marked by prayer. And don't just pray for people privately. Pray for them and tell them, Pray for people reactively in the moment they share a need. Again, the more we practice a habit of personal prayer, the more equipped we will be to step out in boldness and pray for others as a part of our fellowship. And thirdly, in this topic of participating well, we are to help keep each other till the end. This idea in verse 25 of encouraging one another all the more until the day draws near, has a sense of perseverance behind it. There's a recognition that a life of following Jesus is not an easy one. As the City of Light song goes, one with Christ, we will encounter harm and hatred for his name. We may go through periods of doubt and faltering faith. More often, there are times where the weariness of a broken world weighs down heavily upon us. This is one of God's great graces to us. He gives us each other as a means of perseverance to the end. He gives us each other to keep us from being lured by the world's false offer of comfort and to instead see Christ as our lasting treasure. John Piper puts it this way, you are God's appointed means to keep your brother or sister from being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Christian fellowship exists for this, to say things to one another that keep us believing. So, a twofold application. On the one hand, watch one another closely. Be aware of one another. Know each other's struggles and weaknesses. Be a means of grace to a struggling believer. Maintain relationships with those who are drifting. On the other hand, be open with one another. Confess your sin. Express your doubts. Let others know of your hardships. We fear to do this because we assume people will push us away or judge us. Most likely, they'll appreciate your honesty and share an area of struggle in their own life as well. All all of these things can be really hard. I know they can. They strike against our natural desire for individualism and call us to a community. In his book, You Can Really Grow, John Hindley touches on some of the reasons we struggle to pursue these aspects of fellowship. He says this, we fear being inconvenienced. We fear being exposed. We fear being busy. We fear being known. We fear being hurt. We fear being judged. We fear not looking good. We fear saying something silly about Jesus. We fear being honest about what we haven't read in the Bible lately. We fear being given something to eat that we don't like. We Fear. But then he continues to grow in fellowship, risk being weird and starting up conversations about Jesus. You might feel self conscious, but others will be grateful and join in. To grow in fellowship, offer and accept honesty. Their desperate need for grace is as great as yours. Show it, receive it, and learn to repent together. Although our growth in fellowship will never be easy. It is stunningly simple. Never easy, stunningly simple, and extremely good. Ultimately, fellowship is a rich means of grace for our growth because it helps us to behold Jesus. We point each other to Jesus as we sing praises together. We deepen our understanding of him in scripture when we read it together. And we draw near to him as we pray with one another and as we behold him we will surely be transformed into his likeness let's pray that this would be true of our fellowship and thank god for this precious gift of grace heavenly father we thank you for your gift of grace of fellowship to us lord we thank you for the believers in our lives who encourage us and spur us onward. Lord, we pray that you would make us those who consider each other, who love one another well. Lord, we pray that through your body, you would keep us all till the end, till we see you face to face. And Lord, may we be transformed into your likeness. We pray that by your spirit, you would help us grow. Amen. Oh, man.